We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show here on MPW Digital. I'm Neil McCready, joined, as you might expect, by the Chair of Economics at the University of Mississippi, one Dr. Josh Hendrickson. Josh, how are you, sir? Pretty good. So in the last two weeks, there's really not much to talk talk about. Um, not much has happened in the world. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll talk about cooking, maybe the weather. No, actually, there, there's a lot that has happened. Um, I've got a lot to get to. I want your thoughts on. I'll, I'll start with this because I know this is something that, that you think about, that I think about, that we talk about a lot. We'll get to Israel in more specificity maybe in a minute. This dovetails with Israel. In case you don't know, right now there's a war going on in Ukraine. There's quite a conflict going on in uh, the Middle East between Israel and Palestine, the Gazans. Scott Pelley of 60 Minutes was granted a one-on-one with the President of the United States, Joe Biden. And uh, Pelley asked the president, are the wars in Israel and Ukraine more than the United States can take on at the same time? It's a fair question. I'll give Mr. Pelly credit. It's fair. Uh, the president answered with, of, of course not. We're the United States of America. We're the most powerful country on the globe. We might be the most powerful country in the history of the world. Of course we can handle it. To which my response was, I don't know, man. I'm not really sure we can handle it. And more importantly, Josh, and this is where I'll leave it with you and I'll shut up. I'm not really sure that whether we can handle it is the question. I don't know that this is a can we do it question. This is a should we do it question. Like, are we really right now in a position to basically fund Ukraine. I mean, let's face it. We're not funding the war. We're funding everything with Ukraine. And at the same time, get involved in a conflict that's been going on forever. We're at the center of it. You essentially have two sides that are, and I'm, I'm boiling this down really simply, arguing over whose God is right. I don't know that in that situation you're going to get anybody to cry uncle. The Gazans, the Palestinians invaded. It was a terror attack. It was their 9-11. And I think we all agree that Israel not only has the right to respond, 
but the duty to respond. And that response is going to be bloody because war is bloody. And I don't know that it's our place as a country, and I don't know that we're capable of it at this point, but I'll go back to the not, this is not a can, but it should. Should we be fighting or funding wars in both Ukraine and Israel at this time in our history? So there's a lot to unpack here. So let's start with the, of course, we can pay for this. The, the, the kind of, of course, we can pay for this line of thinking is on its face just kind of ridiculous, right? It's not obvious that um, we can pay for it. The very first lesson that you learn in economics is that, you know, the fundamental thing we're trying to figure out is who gets what. Why are we trying to figure out who gets what? Well, because there are finite resources in the world. So if there's finite resources in the world, that means that resources you're using for one thing can't be used for something else. And so in short, you face resource constraints. If you face resource constraints, you have to figure out what the best use of your resources are. Uh, to claim that because we're great, we don't face constraints is not really a, that, that's not really a valid argument. Uh, so that, so that's that part. Um, the other thing is, is that this is exactly why if you want to be involved in these sorts of things, or if you think that this is what the United States should be doing, that you should have been advocating for the government to spend less money during normal times. If you look historically at government budget, uh, government budgets, what happens is, is that, you know, they have wars, they have emergencies, they have all of these other things that they experience. And those are the periods where they run up a lot of debt. But then the, the emergency ends, the war ends, and then they pay off the debt gradually, slowly over time. But the point is, is that you're, you're doing this and you're paying it off over time because you want to be able to have the capacity to fund the things that you need to fund, uh, over the long term. And we haven't done that at all. Um, both Republicans and Democrats have spent way more than we bring in in tax revenue for decades. And so we've ran up, an enormous amount of debt and the attitude seems to be that, well, we can just do this forever and it's not obvious that we can, that, that we can do this forever. When it comes to the should thing, let's kind of, let's kind of think about this. Okay. One thing that kind of bugged me about this, this whole uh, situation that we're in, in the world. And then the kind of compare and contrast between Israel and Ukraine is like, there's one just fact of the world that has been true since the beginning of recorded human history, okay, from like Sargon of Akkad, like 5,000 years ago until today, and that is this. States that exist, um, they exist because they have an army, they have a military, and the size of that state and the ability of that state to continue to survive is entirely contingent on that military being able to defend that land. That was true 5,000 years ago. That's true today. Okay. And I thought that this was maybe a well-understood point, right? Because what we've heard for the last several months is like, well, Russia invaded Ukraine. They have violated their sovereignty, right? They have crossed their borders. This is, um, you know, th th this is, uh, you know, this is a violation of, of their sovereignty and they have a right to fight back and that we should help them in, in that, in that process. That's the uh, that that's the sort of argument. Um, now, of course, whether we should help them or not is a separate issue from whether or not their sovereignty has been violated. But also at the same time, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
this is again a tale as old as time this is all of human history this is exactly what happens countries go to war with one another um and they have disputes those disputes are settled uh oftentimes militarily occasionally diplomatically but throughout human history that's how these things were resolved if you go to the year like 900 there were like 200 states in europe if you go to the year 1990 there were 20 okay how did we get from 200 to 20 well because of war <laughs> they fought with each other and the winners absorbed the losers and they consolidated until you know the there were these group of countries that exist with the particular borders that they have because they have a military that can defend those borders. So that is all of human history. Th this has been true. What's odd then is then, you know, so, so first of all, what Russia is doing is not surprising in the context of broad human history. This is a thing that always happens. People go to war. They have interests, perceived interests. They have threats or perceived threats. And that's why, and that's why war occurs. But then you have this thing in Israel, and so what you have is you have people um, who uh, commit terrorist attacks, and then the response to this is is that, well, you know, there needs to be like a measured response, or they shouldn't go too hard on these people or whatever. And it's like, no, like, so from the beginning of human history until now, if you wanted to take over a particular plot of land, you raised an army and you brought your army in and you fought. And terrorism is this weird thing where what they try to do is uh, terrorism kind of allows you to attack without necessarily having the threat of retaliation because the terrorists can attack, but the terrorist isn't necessarily representing a, a state or a government. And, so, and, this, and, and in fact, like the state or the government that might actually support the terrorist might say, hey, we didn't tell them to do this. Hey, this isn't our doing. You know, don't don't bring this over here. This or, is or at the minimum, you can't prove that we told right. them to do this. Right. Right. And so the thing is, is that the response is, is just sort of uh, bizarre because the response is like, well, you know, you really there's really not much you can do about this or you or you can't do this. And and. But what this is, is it's kind of cheating, right? Because what it says is, is that, well, if you're willing to do acts of terrorism, then you can kind of engage in war and conflict in a way that people who aren't willing to engage in terrorism uh, can, right? Because if you're just going to go in and, you know, um, you're going to commit terrorist attacks, but like nobody, there, there's no state or there's no area that, that can be attacked and there's no army that's being raised to go in and try to take over Israel or something like that, that somehow this is... Um, you know, that Israel's not permitted to, to fight back. But that, that makes absolutely no sense because, like, you're under attack. And so, yeah, there might not be a state, but, you know, they're not, uh, they're, it, it's a, it, it's kind of manipulating the the game and it's, and it's manipulating the game in a way because diplomats around the world uh, want to make sure that, you know, you don't go too far, or you don't create a larger conflict. And so, like, they're, you know, they're always pushing for, oh, you need this kind of like measured response. And so you see these two reactions and the two reactions are, seem to be quite different, right? Like the, what Russia did to Ukraine, this is, you know, they, they violated, you know, the sacred border of Ukraine, but terrorist attack in Israel is not treated in the same way. And then a lot of, also a lot of what you get is like, um, people lose sight of this. Like I, I've talked about this before. Wars are fought over your own interests or what your perceived interests are, your national interests, right? Like Russia and Ukraine are fighting over their own perceived 
national interests. And whether we should participate depends on our own national interest, right? But a lot of people want to frame these things entirely in terms of like moral principles. But like morality is not, that that's not the judge here. And so you, you have all of these people who are saying, um, you know, well, Israel actually like deserved it because they're oppressing Palestinians or, or, or something like that. And that's, and, and so then it's like, well, wait a second. And, and this actually gets to the crux of the matter, because I think that you can actually understand all of this stuff that's going on because like the modern left has adopted this ideology. And I want to be clear about this. When I say ideology, I think some people think that I'm using ideology to say like, oh, like this is just a certain set of beliefs. Right. But that's not what I mean. When I say ideology, I mean like ideologues are motivated by, yes, a particular set of beliefs, but those particular set of beliefs might not have any relationship to like historical experience or empirical data or anything like that. Right. And, but what you have is the, the modern left has adopted this kind of view that like everything can be understood as the oppressed versus the oppressors. Like there's an oppressed class and then there's an oppressor class and the oppressed um, should always get our sympathy and they always deserve to be, um, you know, and, 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 you know, we, we always want to defend them. Okay. And in principle, this is very appealing, right? Because who wants to stand on the side of the oppressor, right? Like, uh, nobody's getting together and being like, Hey, you know, these people are oppressing these other people. We should, we should, you know, be friends with them. We should ally with them, you know, like, no, and, and that's part of the problem is that you're not only casting it as oppressed versus oppressor, but then you're also then defining who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. And you're also in, and, and, and again, you're taking into, you're not taking into account a variety of other things, right? So, I mean, you hear this all the time when, um, they talk about, uh, like whose land is this, right? Like they do that in Israel, but they do that in the United States, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen these things, but there are certain like, uh, like I think Microsoft was the first tech company to do this. Like they, they put out this video where they're going to talk to you about Microsoft office or something like, you know, we, we have this new version of Microsoft office and they're like, oh, before we get started, we want to do a land acknowledgement. We want to know who like was on this land where we're, <laughs> we're operating like originally. God. And it's like, okay, are we really going to do that? Like, are we really going to do that? Because, like, um, the well, and how far back do you go with that? Right. Well, exactly. That's my point. Is that if you do that, what they do, what they're doing is, is that they get into this thing where they're just defining um, who was there at a particular point in time, right? And so, like, um, you know, if we go, um, you know, if we go uh, to areas of like, you know, what is now like the Middle East, right? Like, um, if we go back far enough, like this is like Sumerian land. Okay. So are we going to track down like the descendants of all the Sumerians? And then they're going to, I mean, are, are they the oppressed people over there? Like there are, you know, the, the, the thing that always happens is like, they're just casting these, uh, groups of people into like the oppressed or the oppressors, but then they're just arbitrarily defining, things by starting history at a particular point in yes. time. Yes. What's well, <laughs> They took Thomas Jefferson's statue out of New York City Hall this week. And I thought two things. I thought so 
We're not going to put any context at all into the time period in which Thomas Jefferson actually lived. That's, that's clear. And secondly, if Thomas could talk, he probably would say, thank God, get me the hell out of here. You people are insane. He probably would say, do you know what I sacrificed for you all? Do you have any clue? And the answer to that question would be, no, we have no clue. We have no clue whatsoever. Because we've just picked these arbitrary spots to start history. When it doesn't work like that, any more than your individual life, you didn't start your life at 40 or 30. Nope. The things that happened in your childhood shaped you. Right? I mean, the things that happened growing up, the people you were grew up with, your parents, your grandparents, your friends, your teachers, your the teams you played on, the schools you went to, the friends you made, the relationships you had that, that maybe worked or didn't work, um, the, the wife that, that you married, the children that you have, their strengths, their weaknesses, all of those things shape you. So it's the same thing with, with a nation or with individuals or with groups or, or anything is that you can't just take a segment of it out and go, that's, nope, we started here. It doesn't work like that. Which, go ahead, give me your thought, because I'm, I'm going to ask another question, which is, it makes me wonder sometimes with our country, I can't remember whether this was Rogan that said this, someone I was listening to was talking about ends of empires. I mean, a thousand years from now, assuming that we haven't blown up this big rock by then, thousand years from now when historians look back on America, on the American Revolution, one that was successful, one that was followed some 80 years, that's it, 80 years by a massive civil war. When they look back at America, will they still be talking about America or will America be the next Roman Empire will it have will it have perished? Are we are we witnessing the, the the great decline of America to the point that there will no longer be a United States of America? That it will and I know people go that's absurd. I can't even imagine why you talk about that. Well, look at different countries around the the globe. The globe changes. Countries that used to exist don't exist. That happens. Israel is a, a fairly new country. If you think about it. Um, are we watch, watching the end of the American empire right now? Because there's a lot of people that think that, and frankly, I can't really argue with them. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of related to the earlier point that I made. Like all of these like empires, you know, that emerged, they emerged and then, and then they kind of, um, and, and they disappeared. And like, so, but they disappear for a variety of reasons. I mean, one of the things that, you know, should be mentioned is that, you know, the purpose of a lot of these empires, we, you know, we talked about war, but like the purpose of a lot of these empires is actually to bring about peace. Right. And it sounds weird because most of these empires are started by like conquerors. Right. But the conquerors are in effect bringing about peace because they're organizing all of these people underneath a regime that is capable of, um, maintaining the empire, enforcing the borders and, you know, preventing, uh, invasions. But all of these empires eventually uh, have ended and they end for, you know, um, a variety of reasons. But like the, the reasons that they tend to end is like, um, one, they just kind of expand beyond the limits of, of the empire. So, uh, you know, 
this can be physical limits, like they just can't enforce their their you know the the land mass just becomes so big they just can't possibly enforce it. Um, or it can be financial constraints uh, and limits like that. Like arguably, um, this is what happened to the British Empire. It was financial constraints. Um, and so there are sort of limits to uh, the the size of the uh, of the empire, and when you hit those limits. Um, whether it's physical limits, whether it's financial limits, you know, it becomes hard to maintain and the, and the empire tends to collapse. And sometimes it's a really slow, long collapse. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's very, uh, very quick and painful. Um, but also, you know, something else that tends to um, lead to the decline of empires is that you have incompetent leaders. Mm-hmm. And you have incompetent leaders because if you think about it, like historically, I mean, this was caused by the fact that like you could have like some great conqueror who takes over a particular territory, establishes an empire, right? But then like that emperor is going to die and then his son is going to take over. And maybe his son's like a tremendous military leader. Maybe his son is a tremendous um, emperor or something like that. Um, but eventually you're going to get some mean reversion there, right? Eventually you're just going to get like some average Joe who doesn't really know what he's doing, uh, who doesn't, you know, uh, who's terrible at military strategy or something. And then they would get, and then they would get corrupt and they're easily, easily manipulated. Sure. And, um, but you know, incompetence comes in a variety of, of forms, you know, like, uh, you know, in the ancient world, it tended to come in the form of, you know, um, military incompetence. Uh, but you know, today it would be sort of, something just like uh, just, you know, incompetence just in terms of governance and in terms of the strategic decisions that uh, you're making. Um, And then like the third thing that kind of leads to the decline of empires is uh, the the empires just tend to become very sort of uh, decadent and obsessed with like depraved behavior. And, uh, and so those are the things, right? Like that, uh, they kind of expand beyond the limits. You have incompetence in those boxes yes. and, uh, <laughs> depravity, right? And, uh, I mean, we're, woo. we're not doing great on any, <laughs> I mean, on any of those. <laughs> Is D all of the above an option <laughs> professor? <clears throat> um, <laughs> I picked on Biden. I'm going to go pick on the other side for a minute. Nikki Haley, Republican, running for president. A bit of a media favorite on the Republican side. Uh, She was on with Jake Tapper, CNN. Not being critical, Jake Tapper had her on, asked questions. And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, that we need to bring in more people from Palestine, from Gaza, and to bring them to America. Um, Steve Deese on Twitter points out that, well, it's 2.3 million from Islamist countries since 9-11, not enough. I mean, she's Haley, kind of like uh, my guy, Lindsey Graham. Lindsey, how many kids does Lindsey have? None? Zero. None. That's right. No kids. Um, They're willing to go to war. Why? Over borders, Josh. They're willing to go to war over borders. Okay? They're willing to go to war over Ukraine's sovereign border. 
They're willing to, 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 to be very worked up about the borders in the Middle East. <clears throat> Is anyone <clears throat> pointing out we kind of have a border issue right now in our country? People coming over in droves. Are, are they are they just ignorant? Because I don't think the, I don't I don't think they are. I don't think Nikki Haley is an ignorant person. I don't think Nikki Haley is an unintelligent person. I don't think Lindsey Graham, as much as I despise him, is an unintelligent person. They're ignoring the obvious. They, they are, there's an agenda here. So I'm picking on Republicans before anybody thinks that I, this is all just bash Biden. We'll bash Biden in a moment because there's some numbers out with Biden that if you're a Democrat, you, you they have to scare you. But this is this is Nikki Haley. This is Lindsey Graham. These are prominent people inside the Republican Party who are just ignoring in the same way that we're accusing Joe Biden of, of ignoring the border. And he is. He's ignoring, ignoring the border. So are they. So let's spread the blame here. Is there just an inability to, to talk about it because it's just politically incorrect? What is, what is that about? We're worried. We, we acknowledge that Ukraine has a border issue. We acknowledge that Israel and, and Gaza, this conflict is over borders in addition to the whose God is the right one. Um, but we, we, can't, we can't have that conversation here. If you, if you say, hey, we have a problem on the southern border and we need to lock it up, we need to lock that down, we need to take this thing seriously, we need to really address that, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're, 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 just, you're just terrible, you're a terrible person, you're an uncaring, bigoted person if you say that. Yet if you say, hey, Russia has no business violating Ukraine's uh, border, you're a hero. I mean, wave the flag in front of your, I mean, whichever flag, a Ukraine flag, get a, 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 an Israel flag, whatever, put it in, in, in the front of your house and you're, you're, boy, you're virtuous, but we can't talk about the American border. What am I missing? Well, first of all, I would say that you referred to her as being on the other side, but I think that when it comes to foreign policy, the problem that we have is there is no other side. Uh, I don't really, point. I don't really hear any differences coming out of, uh, Republicans versus, uh, Democrats on on foreign policy. They seem uh, entirely uh, united uh, in their in their messaging. Now that's gotten a little bit muddied by um, the events in Israel, but but for the most part, right? Well, as the, the father of a seventeen year old, and you have one who's about to be seventeen, that, that's kind of scary a little bit, you know. I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you; it, it kind of frightens me a little bit that that we have this uniparty who appears just all in on yeah let's crank up the war machine let's let's see what happens well we have huge problems here so we we have so many problems all right n number one uh i don't understand why no one is concerned about the southern border like i get it if you want more immigration then you should just pass laws that allow more people to immigrate to the united states like we have a there is a legal process for doing that. And if you want more people to come, then, you know, just pass a law that uh, allows more people to come legally uh, into the United States. Why should somebody be allowed into the United States who sneaks in versus somebody who like goes through all of the steps and, and you know, and, and all these things? And they got 100 percent. Yeah, and they got to wait all this time to get in. And then you have people who just show up and sneak in and, and they get in and have that legislated in Congress. The other thing is, is that, you know, there's, there, there doesn't seem to be any concern here about like, um, th there doesn't seem to be any concern about national security at our, at our own border, right? If you were 
somebody who wanted to perpetrate a terrorist attack on the United States, like wouldn't you just sneak across the southern border when they're just allowing people to sneak across the southern border? Like it just seems like the this would be the much easier way to get yourself in uh, to the to the country. Well, and at the risk of profiling, you see the people say this all the time. That we we have these. They're all military-aged. <clears throat> they're young. They're, they've all apparently traveled thousands of miles, and yet they look perfectly fit. I mean, if, if you and I got out today and walked to California, by the time we got there, Josh, we'd look a little ragged. You know what I mean? Even if we, even if we stayed at a Holiday Inn here and there, we would look a little ragged by the time we walked to California. These people are being flown to the border. Like who's paying for those flights? What is the motivation for that? And then there's they're they're, they're coming into our country and then they're going all over the place. <clears throat> Chicago, Memphis, Boston, New York. What are they doing when they get there? What are these people doing? They're not bringing their families. These are not people who are seeking, "Hey, I'm bringing my family with me." We our, our living conditions in Honduras or Nicaragua or whatever is just Somalia is just no longer bearable. They're not bringing their families across. These are people that these are these are young men. They're, they're, they rarely have females with them. They're young men, and they're coming into our country, and then we have no idea where they are. We're not following them. I know we're giving them money and we're giving them cell phones or whatnot, but we have no idea where they are. We don't know what they're doing, and if anyone dares ask, you're a racist. I don't think that's a racist question to say where where are these people going and how are we how are we how are we keeping account of them. And then when you have last week, you have the the head of the former head of Hamas say, "Let's let's have a, a worldwide day of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, basically terrorism." And people go, "Oh no, that's, he, he, they didn't they didn't mean in our country." Yeah, they did. They said worldwide. We're in the world. I mean, I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I'm confused. Well, I think, I mean, part of it is, is that there seems to be this view that the only reason that anybody would ever want to come to the United States is for opportunity. And um, I, I'm not doubting that that is the primary motivation. And if you went and interviewed people, whether they are doing it legally or illegally, I, I, I don't have any doubts that they would say, you know, this is about opportunity. Um, or like I'm coming here for the, um, you know, cause I'm going to try to achieve the American dream or, or, or whatever. Um, but the, but that, but that's kind of the point, right? Is that you're just assuming that people would, um, are going to show up, uh, who sort of share common values, who have bought into like the American way of life, who want to assimilate into the United States and the thing is, is that, you know, you, you don't know what people's motives are uh, for coming. And so maybe people are coming for a better life. Maybe people are, are uh, coming, you know, for purely self-interested purposes and they have no interest in assimilating into the United States. They just want to be here because they think maybe, you know, they can do better for themselves than if they were somewhere else. And and some people might want to come here to, to do harm. Um, or they might, you know, come here like to make a better life for themselves, but have antipathy towards the United States. But the, but the point is not like the, the, the point of bringing all this up is that we have no idea what they're coming here for. Right. But the, but the assumption is always that, well, it's just they're here for the American dream, just like the rest of us. You know, we're a nation of immigrants. And my attitude is kind of like, look, like there's a case to be made that if you are in the richest country in the world and you have great institutions that, you know, you should 
allow more immigration. So people allow people to escape, you know, these horrible places throughout the rest of the world. But you have a legal process to do that, right? Like you have a way of, of bringing people in. You don't just have random people just kind of showing up and like uh, with like no money and no place to live and having to figure out what to, you know, what to do with themselves when, when they get here. And like no one seems concerned about that at all. Uh, the other issue is, is that I, you know, you, you brought up, um, you know, what's going to happen if the United States has to actually send troops, uh, to, to these wars. I mean, the, the thing that nobody's talking about is that, uh, the, the army, uh, the national security council and, uh, all of these, um, all of these people in the Biden administration, uh, have spent the last several years um, talking about how the one thing that they need to study in the military is the problem of white rage. Yes. They spent a lot of time um, telling people that if they didn't get vaccinated against COVID, that they were going to kick them out of the military. And, um, did. and they're doing all of these things that seem to be aimed at affecting one particular group of people. And, um, and so the question is, is like, how are you going to, um, how, how are you going to attract people to actually go off and fight? And like, and here's the thing is that, you know, you can, you can try to bring back the draft or you can try to do this, but like, I mean, if, if you've alienated people sufficiently or if people don't uh, have reached a point where, uh, they don't believe in the cause, they don't go. If your son came to you tonight at the dinner table and said, dad, when I turn 18, I'm joining the Army. Dad, when I turn 18, I'm joining the armed forces. What would you say? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, it pains me to say it, but I would probably say, you know, you should reconsider, um, you know, most, uh, you know, my, both of my grandfathers, uh, served in the military. Um, two of my uncles served in the military. This is like, you know, it's a proud, you know, kind of, uh, you know, it's looked on admirably, but, but the problem is, is that the military is being, um, the military seemed to always be the one thing that was separate from whatever else was going on in the country, no matter what the, 
no matter what the political debates of the time were, no matter what the culture war stuff was that was going on, like the military just seemed to be completely isolated from from that. And now we're seeing the military just become much more politicized. And I don't know how you can have an effective military if the military is going to be politicized. You, I mean, you can't, if right? My, if my son came to me tonight and said, Dad, I'm turn 18 in a year, I'm going to join the military when I graduate high school. I would say you have lost your absolute mind. The hell you are. No, you're not. I would, he, he could, he might as well say to me, dad, I identify as a dragon. I would say no. Why? Because I don't trust the military. I don't trust the military's motives. I don't trust the government anymore. And this is not, and before anybody goes, oh, you're, you're radical. No, I'm not. It's a pretty widespread thing. I'm going to read some poll numbers in a minute to prove to you. Pretty widespread thing. This is, this is to me, the damage that's being done in the last however many years. So the question would be, okay, so what would we have to do as a nation to win your trust back? I don't know. Well, this is the part of the problem, right? Is that everything that we're doing, I think I mentioned this maybe last time, or maybe I mentioned this off the air. Everything that we're doing is creating fragility, um, we're, we we continue to create economic fragility. We continue to create political fragility. And what I mean by that is that, uh, like on the economic side, um, we always look at the short term benefit without the long term consequences. We never think about the long term costs of any of the policies that we um, that we enact. We're always just trying to minimize pain in the yes. moment yes. and um, and not think about what the consequences are going forward. In the political system, what we're doing is we're everything is becoming like the political system is taking over everything. Everything is becoming politicized. Like there's an old joke that like you know under like the Nazis that like literally magazines about cats would be about like Nazi cats, right? Like because it just it becomes all encompassing that you everything is everything is about the everything is about the ideology. Everything is about the um, you know the political debates of the time, and I mean you already see this now, like. Um, you you look at publications um, like uh, that have become super political, like Rolling Stone, super political. Now they always had political coverage, right? But like now, it it, it seems to be like their main thing that they do. Uh, this is supposed to be a magazine about music, right? And so, yeah, you're gonna co- maybe you cover current events, yeah, maybe you you cover politics, but like it, it's become all encompassing. Um, like Teen Vogue is like super political. Like Teen Vogue, this is a this is a, a teenage girl magazine, and it's it, it used it's, to be a magazine that yeah. was just it was about hey what what was in fashion right maybe yeah. maybe makeup maybe hair maybe it was a, yeah, they would they would profile a, a, a musician or an actress or 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 whatnot and, and and girls young girls would read about it and they would you know emulate and if if the singer that they really liked at that time was wearing a particular brand of clothes obviously they were they would want to get that brand and right it was that kind of thing now that that's still there but to a much much smaller extent now it's it everything feels like it's about some form of indoctrination and so what's but what happens is when everything gets politic politicized it starts to weaken these things because now everybody has an opinion on everything right like now everybody um you know 
has an opinion on particular institutions. Everybody has an opinion on particular publications and everybody has an opinion on everything. And, um, and everybody's picking sides. And the problem is, is that this leads to political fragility because there are people um, who are going to be left out because let's face it. It's not just that everything's being politicized. It's that there's one side that's winning. So things are becoming more politicized and there's one side that's winning in this process. Yes. And so everything is not just becoming politicized. Everything is um, everything is politicized along this particular ideology. And so when it's politicized along that particular ideology, if you don't go along with that ideology, if you don't believe in that ideology, then you are now left out and you feel isolated. Uh, you feel like you don't belong. And that's going to lead to political unrest. And so sometimes that's just, you know, protest voting, right? Like I'm just going to go vote for this uh, for this person who, you know, may be a terrible candidate for their position, but just because I don't want to vote for you or something like that. But that's best case scenario of how people deal with political fragility is like the protest vote. Like, you know, the the other way that people deal with those sorts of things is, um, you know, by by taking actions to actively undermine uh, the government and, and our institutions and, uh, you know, and things like civil war. Right. And, um, this, this just seems to be so far out of the minds of, of our decision makers that they, 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 they don't see that they're creating this fragility. They, they seem to think that they're creating something stronger or that they're, or, or that this is just them ascending to, to power. And, um, and that they, they just feel like they're gradually taking over the power centers and, well, there's there's usually a way that citizenry send a message, other than violence, of course. Um, they vote. Latest ABC News, Ipsos poll. ABC News, not exactly a right wing establishment. I don't know anything about Ipsos. I'm going to assume that they're good people who try to put out accurate polls. Uh, they asked about Joe Biden's approval, their approval on different things about the president. On his uh, immigration border security, he scores 26%. This is out of 100, by the way, in case there's confusion. His approval on inflation, 29%. Gun violence, 32%. Along those lines, crime, 33%. His handling of Iran, 33%. His approval on the economy, the economy of our country, 36%. He can't even win on climate change. Climate change, 36%. I'm sorry, 39%. I don't want to cheat him. Abortion, 39%. The Ukraine-Russia war, 41%. The Israel-Palestine war, 41%. Again, out of a hundred, these are scary numbers. If I'm if I'm the Democratic Party, I mean these are scary numbers, which tells you that. So, in my home state of Louisiana, and look, we in Louisiana almost take pride in how corrupt our politicians are. Okay, I mean we, we we've sent multiple governors to prison. Right, we're, we we it's what we do. Louisiana just went Republican. And not only Republican, but kind of a right-wingy Republican. 
like a Republican that a lot of people who know him don't really like him. They're like, dude's kind of, but he's tough on crime. He's tough on crime in a state that if you go to Baton Rouge, if you go to New Orleans, the first thing you think about is, am I safe? And it's not always been that way, Josh. It wasn't. When I was a kid, my parents took us to New Orleans. We walked around in the French Quarter. We did all that stuff. And, and I never heard them talk about, hey, now be, be careful. It's not safe. We would go to Baton Rouge. I never thought of Baton Rouge as not safe. Now I'm scared in Baton Rouge. Louisiana went Republican. The poll numbers reflect the fact that everything uh, is bad right now. Um, and with good reason, they don't expect Joe Biden to do anything about it. I mean, you know, we, we talked about this last time is that, uh, I mean, this is where the frustration is coming from. Uh, the frustration is coming from people, um, who look around and they see what's going on, right? Like they look at, um, like you had the pandemic, Right. Okay. The pandemic setting aside the actual pandemic policies, right? Like this, it revealed a lot of things to people, right? It revealed like what's going on in the schools that they send their kids to, right? It revealed a lot of things um, about politicians and their attitudes towards power, their attitudes towards free speech, their attitudes towards a variety of things. And um, and, and they're looking around and they're seeing things getting worse, right? They're seeing things getting worse. And as they see things get worse, uh, they're looking for somebody to come along and to just have some level of competence, to just have some level of competence. But, but I think the, the following needs to be said. When it comes to the national level, like I, 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 it needs to be said, no one is coming to save you. There's no one coming to save you. Right. There, there are none of these, none of these uh, presidential candidates, none of them are going to save you. They're not going to do these things. What we have to do as Americans is we have to um, start taking power away from the federal government and bringing it back to the state and local levels where you actually have much greater accountability to your, uh, to your leaders. And we need to, um, you know, and, and, and also then that gives you the ability to self-select. You don't like the way that it is in a particular place. Well, you can move to another place where they have the kind of governance that you want, right? But you allow the state and local governments to have more power and to do, um, to, to do things and to be more responsive to the, to the voters. These national politicians have demonstrated that they're not going to do it. And also let's face it, like the, all of the national institutions have been taken over by, these ideologues. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have, um, you know, you have the state department funding all of these, um, uh, all of these programs all around the world in places that are hostile to things like homosexuality and they're funding programs for like LGBTQ, like education, like in Afghanistan, like, no one would do that like in the state department no one would do that it doesn't matter like whether you are the most ardent supporter of these kinds of policies it doesn't matter if you're the most uh you know if if you really just care about tolerance and inclusion and you just this is what you have dedicated your life to and this is what you want it doesn't matter if you were in the state department and you were a practical person you would not 
institute those programs in Afghanistan because they're not going to work. Right? Like they're not <laughs> they're not going to I work. Mean, some of the people <laughs> okay. I mean, there, there, there's some crazy going on. Some of the people who are v- violently, borderline violently fighting for Palestine. They're, they're Team Palestine here. They're, they're, they're celebrating what happened. If those people got dropped off in Gaza, I shudder at what would happen to them within 30 minutes. And that's the thing is that that's what I mean by these institutions being taken over by like these ideologues is that like they're doing things that just common sense would tell you is not going to be effective. So it doesn't matter whether you think it's a good idea. It doesn't matter if you think that, you know, uh, Afghanistan would be better off with these, um, you know, if, if. you know, people were more tolerant. <laughs> yes. The question is, can you, you know, like you're not going like that. That's Hamas not, is not yeah. going to become tolerant. Yeah. And that's and that and so like that's the thing is that when you get taken over by ideologues, they just start doing these things because they're just wedded to these beliefs independent of any empirical evidence that you can provide to them. Like you do, like they, they do completely ineffective things just because they believe in them. Then they think that they're good. And look, that's fine. If that's your opinion, like you know, good for you, but like, if you're not going to be effective, like take your particular skill set and go to a place where you might actually make a difference, but you're not going to make a difference at the state department doing this in Afghanistan. And they have all kinds of programs like that. And then you look around at, and and that's just one example. I mean, you go around all of these, uh, um, you know, federal institutions, all of these federal institutions, they all, everybody, the, the entire staff of these places, like they're all working on the same ideology it gets back to the point that i always make about the media these, these are the same people this they're just uh you know they just became bureaucrats instead of journalists right but they're all going to the same elite schools they all have the same elite views and they're all gonna and they're and they're gonna do this stuff and they're gonna believe this stuff and they're and they're gonna go 100 miles an hour ahead regardless of whether it's actually going to be effective or not and there, there's no one there to provide counterbalance there's no one there to provide any kind of um any kind of idea of like you know, uh, what other people might think or, um, or to like, just present like some empirical evidence that like, Hey, maybe we're wasting resources on this particular project or, or maybe, um, you know, uh, you know, we should be doing these sorts of things, or maybe we should redirect this project to a country where, you know, people might be more receptive to this or, or something. Right. Did you follow this about, uh, the Cornell professor, Russell Rickford? speaking on the Cornell campus about the Hamas terrorist attacks. He said that Hamas has challenged the monopoly of violence. Yep, he said that uh, when he saw in those first few hours, those first few hours, I'm going to get context here. First few hours of that attack, when they paraglided into a, musical uh, festival. He said there are many thousands of goodwill uh, from Palestine who abhor violence, he says, as do you, as do I, who abhor the targeting of civilians, as do you, as do I, I'm making sure I read this fully, I want to put context in it, who were able to breathe 
They were able to breathe for the very first time in years, he says. This is Russell Rickford. He says, it was exhilarating. It was exhilarating. It was energizing. And if they weren't exhilarated by this challenge to the monopoly of violence, the monopoly of violence, by the shifting of the balance of power, then they would not be human. I was exhilarated. From the river to the seas, Palestine will be free. That's what he says. This is on Cornell's campus. He says he was exhilarated. Let's be clear about what he was exhilarated by. He was exhilarated by images, Josh, of Hamas hang gliding, paragliding into a musical festival in southern Israel and murdering, another word for it, murdering hundreds of mostly young people there at a musical festival. Think Austin City Limits. Think, I don't know, whatever musical festivals there. I'm not a big music festival. New Orleans Jazz Fest. Whatever. Young people go. They have fun. They go. They have fun. They, they My daughter just got back from Austin City Limits. She went Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they went to see different acts, right? Bands I've never heard of. They have. It's cool. It's, it's cool. They have fun. They danced and they sang and she took videos and 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 they, you know, went to the food truck and they got tacos or, or, or a burger and I'm sure they probably used a fake ID and got a seltzer. I mean, they, they were kids. Stuff that we did when we were kids. Kids. That's what they did. That, that Those are the people for context. Those were the people that got uh, murdered, butchered taken from their families forever and they're in most of them young in their early 20s young people young people just there having a fun time enjoying themselves listening to music he was exhilarated by that he got to say that on a college campus it's funny how the first amendment applies to him but people don't want the first amendment to apply to others who have views on other things that are far less obscene than that I say that because you work on a college campus, not one that is nearly as radical as Cornell, for God's sake. But Yeah, but people need to wake up. Um, people need to wake up to what these people actually believe. Um, reasonable people can disagree about what to do about Israel and the Palestinians. You can have a view that you think... Um, Israel uh, is unfair to the Palestinians or that they have imposed, you know, sufficient uh, harm on them that, uh, you know, that the Palestinians should rise up or they should try to do something or, or whatever. You, you can sympathize with the Palestinians. Um, you can sympathize with the Palestinian cause. But when you are exhilarated by seeing innocent people murdered uh that's a you problem that's not um that's not a palestine that like that's we're beyond what to do about israel palestine at that point but people need to wake up because there are people who are true believers like that and and what that means is that they they not only uh condone 
the violent actions of terrorists, but that they actually support these things and they are uh, excited by them. Yes. And it's kind of, you know, and well, and here's the thing is that my issue is not so much with what he said, because like, uh, you know, it's well known that, you know, there are a lot uh, academics are well known for having saying crazy things and having crazy beliefs and, and things like that. Um, so like the actual comments don't surprise me, but like the, but the thing about this that I haven't really seen people mention is that at no point does he seem concerned about expressing this opinion of the great satisfaction that he found watching innocent people being murdered in cold blood. And at at no point did he think like, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't say this out loud or at no point did he think like, um, maybe this isn't the appropriate venue for me to, to mention this. And that's and that's kind of the issue is that the issue is, is that um, he felt comfortable to do that because he knew that there were no repercussions. He knew that people are not going to do anything to him that because the, let's face it, one of the places that have been taken over um, are universities, right? Universities are a patronage network for the left. I mean, that's what they are. They um, they they train people in in a particular ideology and then they employ said people who adopt that ideology. Yes. Um, there are, well, and, and not only that, when they run out of faculty positions, they create administrative positions. When they run out of administrative positions, they send them off to uh, do, to, to take jobs at the uh, accreditation agencies, which then create work for the universities to do. And then the university has to hire new administrators to handle all of the... It's kind of like the government model. Know. Really, right? We just yeah. keep, you keep creating more and more fat. And yeah, and the just, bureaucracy you the, gets you enormous. The, you let the citizenry pay for it. Yeah, the bureaucracy gets enormous. I mean, think, think about accreditation. Accreditation is kind of silly, right? Like, what, if I want to buy a refrigerator, I don't, like, check with an accreditation agency, right? What do I do? Um, I typically rely on, like, name brands, right? Like, I go to the store and I say, oh, well, you know, this is a brand that I've heard of or this is a brand that sure. I've used before or this sure. is a brand that, like, my parents have or something, and that's how I make a decision. Uh-huh. Right. That I mean, that's how you, you know, and and look, a, a refrigerator is a long term commitment. Right. Uh, ideally, this thing is going to last you that's a decade. The, that's right? the plan. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, you, you would like for it to. Yeah. And so. um, But we don't do that with universities. Right. With universities, we're like, oh, no, no, no. Like people can't just look at the name of the university. Like you would never know that like Harvard was a good school to go to. Right. Like you would never know. Like, how would anybody know whether or not they should send their child to Old Miss? How would they know? If it weren't for these accreditation agencies, mm-hmm. right? It's like, right. no, you would know. And the way that you would know is the way that you know that a refrigerator is good. But we have all of these agencies that, um, you know, and a lot of what they do is they just generate work. That That's all that they really do. They generate a lot of work. And then that work has to be done by somebody. And then who's getting hired? It's the people in the patronage network. It's the people who got PhDs. Uh, there are no jobs available to them. Uh, in their field um, because too many of them are getting PhDs. And so they just transition into these administrative roles and that, and and then that becomes their, their job. And, and this is, this epitomizes everything that's going on across all of these just different institutions is that they're, you know, th- this is how they become uh, taken over by these ideologues is that they they essentially create a network where they're where they're producing the people and then hiring the people who perpetuate the exact same thing and that's why he feels comfortable to say it because if you go to a place like Cornell uh 
the ideology is well known. It's ingrained. You're not going to find very many people who are uh, right leaning at Cornell. Um, and but, um, but and Jesus, not just that. Josh, you don't yeah. even have to be right leaning here. I mean, you have to be human. To, well, to, but that's what I mean, though, is that like, people got to wake up to some of the people that like there are people on the radical left who are will who not only you know who who think that violent acts like this are permissible in this context and then you have to wonder in what other context do they find su- such acts permissible right and you have to think about these things and that's what i mean when i say that people have to wake up is that in the last several years on social media people feel emboldened to say things that i would never imagine people would say in public and they say these things and they say them without any second thought and um, and you know, people have to think about what these things actually mean and what these people actually believe, because if they're going to stand out there and you're going to say that, you know, like, you know, it was exhilarating to, uh, to see these innocent people murdered. Well, what other cause would justify murdering innocent people and what, you know, and, um, and, you know, uh, how much would you celebrate in, in those instances? These are things that people should be asking. And we ha- also have to be careful because we can't just dismiss these people and say, oh, well, that's just the, a crazy professor. There's always mm-hmm. crazy professors. No, no, no. like we, the people need to ask questions about these things and people need to, to, to think about it because these people are teaching at major universities. They're supervising people's research at universities. Yes. They're controlling whether people get jobs at these universities. Yes. And so it's very important to actually, um, you know, inquire as 100%. to what this means and, um, and, and and that sort of thing. And, you know, it, it's it's incredibly, you know, concerning that he had zero qualms about just saying this in public. Like there will be no consequences for me celebrating innocent people losing their lives. Um, in he, in, yeah. in in. They went into a community, Josh. They went into a community, door to door, and murdered innocent people. Literally the equivalent of going into your neighborhood or my neighborhood and just going door to door and killing everyone. Didn't matter. Young people, old people, babies. Just killing people in cold blood. And that was exhilarating? I mean, I can think of a lot of words that it was. Exhilarating doesn't even, nope, nope, not, a, not on the wheel. Not on the, the wheel of fortune wheel, you know, where you had all the options. No, nope, that's not it. Nothing exhilarating about that. And the fact that he can say that, and look, I know he's tenured, so he can say what he wants. But the fact that there's no, and maybe there is a degree of outcry from Cornell alums or whatnot. But that's not national news. We do, we, we do the cancel culture thing, right? And yet there's no one calling for his cancellation. So, so the only conclusion that I can reach is one of two things. One is that they've, meaning the far left, have won the culture wars to the point that it's over, at which point my question about the empire thing comes right back. Or all of the powers that be essentially agree with him, that they also were exhilarated. They're either scared to say that, no, you're wrong, man, or they agree with him. Well, this is what I mean when I say that people need to wake up to what's going on is that there is a segment of 
uh, of the modern left that is nihilistic. And they're nihilistic in the sense that um, they, they think that everything that exists in society can be, um, can be deconstructed down to a point where everything is just arbitrary and that everything is arbitrary and it's just determined by who's in power. That the rules that we have in society um, are just entirely determined by the people who are in power. And when that becomes your attitude, then all that you care about is um, is power. Because you're like, well, okay, all of these arbitrary rules, all these rules in society, they're entirely arbitrary. Um, they're just determined by who has the power. So it's just up to who has the power to determine the rules. And so if I don't like the rules, the natural thing is, is that, you know, I need to change who's in power. And, um, and so the problem here is, um, and, and this fits into the oppressor versus, uh, oppressed, you know, kind of characterization, right. Is that all of these rules are just put in place, you know, by the oppressor, right. And they're in power yeah. and they get to determine all the rules and they're just oppressing everyone else. And so if we want to change these rules, then we've, we've got to, um, you know, we've got to seize power. We've got to take the power away from these people. Um, well, there's a couple of problems with this. Uh, problem number one is that seizing power is going to require uh, some degree of conflict, right? Like no one gives up power willingly. So if you're actually seizing power, um, then, you know, uh, this, this is going to be involve some form of violence. But think about what that means. What that means is, is that if the only means to change is violence and people come to believe that the only way to change things is violence – then they're going to resort to violence. And not only that, but like the most violent people are going to be attracted to this ideology because they want to perpetrate the violence. Yes. And so like, I mean, like you hear this all the time when people talk about Stalin, like they act like Stalin just kind of like, they, they act like the Soviets were trying to determine like who was going to take over uh, the, you know, and they're just like sitting in a room and like Stalin is just like sort of like cupping his ear on the door and the door frame broke or something and he fell on the floor and they were like, how about the guy with the mustache? No, that's not how he got power. He got power because he was ruthless. He wanted power. He wanted, you know, and he was willing to do anything to get and maintain that power. This is how you get, this is how you get people like this. Now, kind of the irony is that th these people who believe that they have to seize power like, I mean, I don't I don't understand. Like they they go around all day talking about the oppressed versus the oppressor. They go around all day talking about, oh, we need to um, you know, like we need to um, you know, seize power or we need to take power away. Like when they look around, like where do they where do they not have power? Where if if you lived in a truly oppressed society where like um, you know, like you wouldn't be allowed to stand in the middle of a college campus and say you are exhilarated by mm -mm. Um, the murdering of innocent people. Right. And, um, and, and not only that, like forget like punishments, like it wasn't punished at all. And so the, the idea here is that um, th there's a subset of these people who have a very, very radical ideology and that, uh, and that ideology is a much bigger threat than I think people, um, know uh or at least seem aware of and that you know people who think like that like they're they have to be defeated them their allies their co their political coalitions like they have to be defeated we do not want people like that anywhere near power we do not want people like that like uh influencing um people and shaping other people's 
beliefs. And like this is uh, a battle of ideas and their ideas suck. They're all deconstruction and they're all, um, you know, tearing things down. They have no plan about what to do after everything is torn down. You know, like the, that's like when we just go into the black box and we come out of the black box and like to utopia or something like that. Like, but there's, they, they have no plan. All they have is deconstruction. All they have is they want to tear down the things that, um, that they believe are standing in, in their way and of constructing the world as they would like to see it. All right. Last thing. So I'm expecting this is going to be a major legal issue in Washington. Uh, I don't know if you remember January 6th, 2021. <clears throat> oh, I thought you meant enough of this year. I was, was unaware of the significance of the date. January 6th, 2021, there was a, uh, I believe the word that was used was an insurrection. It was, it was, um, was this in Washington, D.C.? It was a large group of people walked mostly peacefully into the Capitol. There was, there was some violence. They, were, they interrupted the people's business. They did. They interrupted government business that day. Literally had to clear Congress. Um, one person was shot. That person was a protester. Uh, but it, it was it was it was it was an, it was an insurrection. It was it was it was, it was not I'm not minimizing it. It was, it was wrong. It was a bad look. Uh, those people have been locked up. The FBI has hunted them down. Over the last, they're still hunting them down. Still to this day, reviewing video and finding these people and locking them up. Well, today, on Wednesday, there was a group of pro-Palestinian protesters. They stormed the Capitol. They interrupted the people's business. Um, I'm assuming that we will refer to that as the 1018 insurrection, right? Um, I'm assuming that our FBI already stretched to its maximum, hunting down the J6 insurrectionists. I'm assuming that they will now have to get back to it. So much for the slowdown, boys. We're, we will hunt these people down that invaded the Capitol today. And we will give them 17-year prison sentences, 22-year prison sentences. That's coming, right? That's It's not coming. I mean, what's good for the goose? It, it's not coming at all. And a lot of people are going to call that hypocrisy, but people on the right need to recognize something is that uh, it's not hypocrisy. I forget who said this, but it's not hypocrisy. It's hierarchy. Yes. They are not hypocrites. Um, they don't, the, they, um, you know, there's one side that um, sets rules for the other side. And that's, you know, and, and, and that's how it operates. It's not hypocrisy. Um, people on the right are constantly, I get in, I get really frustrated when I watch the political commentary on the right, because most of the political commentary on the right is look at these hypocrites. Can you believe these hypocrites? Like they, you know, they said you can't do X and here they are, they're doing X and like, you know, what hypocrites? And they think that like, that's going to like win them elections or something is like pointing out the hypocrisy. And it's like, it's, it's not hypocritical. Like they're not, they like what people on the right don't seem to understand is that the tactic of, uh, of a lot of people on the left is to hold people on the right to their values. Oh, I thought you believed in freedom. I thought you believed in law and order. 
I thought you believed uh, in the sanctity of democracy. I thought that you believed in whatever it is, right? Whatever it is. Yeah. I thought you believed in that. And then the people on the right, especially like the politicians on the right, like their careers are ruined over these things, right? As they say, oh, well, it's true. Uh, I really can't stand up for this. It violates my values. Uh, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm, I'm going to step down or I'm going, you know, or I'm going to apologize or I'm going to do this. And then it happens on the other side. And the right says, see, you say that you care about democracy. You, see, you say that you care about freedom. And, uh, you know, now you have to apologize. Now you have to resign. And the people on the left are just like, no. Nah. Because it's not hypocrisy. They're holding you to the standard that you set for yourself, but they're not holding themselves to the same standard. Because their standard is about achieving power and their, and their standard is about uh, making the world more like they want the world to, to be. And that's and the, the values that you hold, they will hold you to those values. They will hold you to those standards. But they're not the same. They, they, don't, they don't have those standards. That's not their objective. Those aren't their values. Those aren't their standards. And so they're not going to play the game. When we come back two weeks from now, it'll be November be a year away from the big election, which presumably will be Biden versus Trump. Along those lines, this is from the Miami Herald. We'll leave it here. The Miami Herald, again, this is not a right-wing bastion of journalism. The Miami Herald is not, I can assure you. Um, A large portion of Americans on both sides of the aisle favor getting rid of democracy and imposing violence on their political opponents among other authoritarian measures, according to a new poll. 31% of Donald Trump supporters and 24% of President Joe Biden supporters said democracy is, quote, no longer viable, end quote, and an alternative system should be tried, according to an October poll from the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. Again, not a right-wing haven. The poll surveyed 2008 registered voters from August 25th to September the 11th. And has a margin of error of plus or minus 2.2 percentage points. Key findings, when asked whether it's acceptable to employ violence to stop political opponents from attaining their goals, 41% of Biden supporters, 38% of Trump supporters said yes. 30% of Trump supporters and 25% of Biden supporters said elections should be suspended in times of crisis. Put a, put a, put a flag on that one. 41% of Trump supporters and 30% of Biden supporters said they favor either conservative or liberal states seceding from the union. 41 and 30. Asked that question 10 years ago, it would not be that high. Nearly half of Biden supporters, 47%, and 35% of Trump supporters said the government should restrict the expression of views, quote, considered discriminatory or offensive. 47%. You don't think the fundamental... You know that the fundamental shape of our country is changing? You're out of your mind. It most certainly is. Well, and this is my biggest concern. I don't think I've ever said it here, but we've talked about it many times. My my biggest concern here is, is that the left seems to think that they can kind of slowly consolidate power. Um, and maybe they can. Maybe they will. But the alternative is, is that... Uh, if they continue to slowly consolidate power, people are eventually going to think about um, the people who are opposed to them being in power are going to think about alternatives. And those alternatives are quickly going to, um, you know, 
transcend the ballot box, right? So yes, um, and so it's going to go to secession. And I think that what people don't, uh, I, I think that the people who think that they can consolidate power or that it's just kind of inevitable that they'll consolidate power is that the, um, you know, those sorts of s- schemes, you know, are the kinds of things that end up giving us like an American Napoleon or something, right? Or an American Franco, right? You get somebody who just rises up on the other side and just says, I'm going to end, I- I'm going to end this. And, um, and I, and, you know, as I've told you before, like, I mean, this is incredibly concerning because I think, um, there's a subset of people who would, who would applaud this and who would welcome, uh, this person, whoever they may be, um, you know, if they got rid of their political, uh, opponents or they got rid of the, the, the current, uh, sort of regime, um, but my concern is, is that, you know, you might, you might like that in the moment and you might like that in the short run, but you have to think about what you're giving up and you have to think about what, um, you know, like we've, we've talked about this before, like the U S government, the, the United States constitution, uh, is, uh, an incredible document, right? Like this is a, I mean, this is a dramatic human experiment that has gone incredibly well, uh, for a very long time. And so, um, if you're cheering for that consolidation, if you're the 40 percent of the people on either side who are sort of cheering for the consolidation of power under your preferred leader, you know, you need to think carefully about what you're giving up. And you need to think carefully about what the long run implications are. You need to think about like, what are your, what's your life and your children and your grandchildren's lives going to be like? And you have, and, and also, um, you have to think about like all of these people who are answering yes to these questions about, you know, uh, about this is, you know, um, about whether like democracy has outlived its usefulness or whatever, like, um, you know, they're, they're imagining their side wins when they answer yes. Yes. They're not imagining that their side loses. They never think about what happens if the pendulum swings. And so, um, you know, people have to be thinking about that and they have to be thinking about, you know, what they want for their future. But then you also have to be thinking about how do you get to the future that you want, right? And you have to start taking seriously um, some of the things that are going on and start paying attention to some of the things that are going on and like I said, like, I mean, I think really the only hope is to kind of take power away from the federal government and move it back towards, you know, states and localities where, um, you know, polit- where you have, you know, like um, you've got Republicans and Democrats in Mississippi, but you've got Republicans and Democrats in California. And the, this is not the same divide. It's not the same, you know, like the, the marginal issue that those two sides are debating over are much different. Well, just let the state policies reflect that. Let the local policies reflect that. Like the, um, you know, let the people who are more responsive to voters be making more important decisions rather than, uh, people, uh, who are going off to DC and who are making these decisions and that are imposed on, uh, the entire country and, um, and who have, you know, politicized all of our institutions, uh, 
you know, but people have to start thinking about what those solutions are and they have to start thinking about, you know, what they want for the future and how to go about that because we're heading down a bad path. Like things are going very, very badly. And when you listen to the responses on those polls, it's very clear that people clearly see that things are going wrong. The Biden poll uh, about his approval numbers and then the, the the other poll that we just went over, like these these are reflecting the idea that people recognize that things are going poorly, that things are not um, going the way that they should. And but they have to recognize that like this isn't going to get solved by one presidential election and it's not going to get, you know, there, there's no quick fix. There's no easy solution to this. And that um, and but in saying that, that means that people have to actually think about what is the path that gets us to where we want to go. And um, I don't and, and my concern is, is that it's just going to end up, you know, in violence. Well said. We'll leave it there. We'll come back in two weeks. Like I said, it'll be uh, it'll be November. So uh, happy Halloween to everyone. Since that will uh, that will pass a couple of days before we uh, we reconvene. Happy Halloween. Be safe. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend. Spread it. Uh, if you know someone who would like to sponsor or should sponsor the show, we're still looking for uh, we're still looking for one. Had some people reach out. Obviously, it's a controversial show. It's not really controversial. It's just factual. Just talking. But some people view that as as controversial, which I get. I understand. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. For Josh, I'm Neil. Till next time, take care. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.